0: Welcome to this special edition of Daily Vet Life, where we're bringing you short interview synopses of presentations from the 2021 AAEP convention. These special editions are brought to you by Zoetis. I'm Kim Brown, Editor of Actual Management. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Laura Jeffsikas, VMD, DACVIM of Rhineback Equine in New York, on management of the neonate in the field. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Jeffsikas. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we... Really just would like to ask you to cover the key points that you and your co-presenter, Dr. Ernie Martinez of Kentucky, discussed during this AAEP convention table topic.
1: Sure. We covered a lot of topics during during our session and had really good discussion. I now work predominantly in a hospital setting, but do see bulls in the field. Consult with our ambulatory team who sees them in the field every day while Dr. Martinez works exclusively in the field. And so we had a lot of good information from uh, both the hospital setting and field um, to apply to horses in the field, neonates in the field specifically. So a lot of general full management topics were covered. There was a lot of interest in the administration of plasma for prevention of rhodococcus equi. Uh, There's a relatively new study uh, showing that giving two liters of plasma rather than one within the first few days of life may provide a more appropriate level of antibodies to help prevent infection from occurring uh, because we know that infection occurs at a very young age in these foals and rhodococcus continues to be one of the infections that we battle the most with um in our full age group and particularly as we are starting to see more resistance um to rotococcus or sorry to resistance of rotococcus to various antibiotic treatments that we have. Um, along those lines we also just talked a little bit about monitoring foals for disease and the importance of taking temperature regularly on farms. I'm a huge advocate of farms taking temperatures um, to help screen for for disease. And it can be the first indicator that there's a problem. And specifically with rhodococcus, it tends to tell you when there's a foal that is clinically affected rather than one that just has a subclinical infection. But back to the to the neonates, we had good discussion about umbilical care and prevention and treatment of infection Um, from when you dip, how you dip it, how the cord is torn, uh, which I think is very important. Uh, And uh, Dr. Martinez and I both prefer a dilute chlorhexidine solution for initially dipping the umbilicus because it maintains activity in the face of organic debris more so than iodine-based solutions. Also, I think it's important that that umbilical cord is uh, stretched and breaks either naturally or that we help it to stretch and break rather than cutting the cord uh, because it tends to not uh, (laughs) shrivel up as it naturally would and I think can lead them to be more susceptible to umbilical infections. Um, We discussed the importance of ultrasound of the internal umbilical structures when suspicious of an infection, which might be because the foal has a fever or a septic joint, um, or even just a high white count on routine screening. And there are some resources out there um, which we provided a link to the attendees for uh, ultrasound references for those internal umbilical structures. And then in terms of treatment for umbilical structures, both Dr. Martinez and I start with a conservative medical approach uh, with antibiotic treatment that gets good penetration into those structures. I like a combination of Equisol and Rifampin um, because it's easy to dose appropriately in a full, is oral, fairly inexpensive, and does get good penetration and broad spectrum coverage into those structures. And then I follow that up with a recheck of blood work and ultrasound to see if the ultrasonographic appearance is improving after about 7 to 10 days of treatment before deciding if that full may need surgical intervention to remove those remnants there was all, there are also a lot of questions about treating and preventing diarrhea in the full a uh, huge problem right now in central Kentucky uh, with rotavirus b and it is one of those things that can be very very hard I think to manage in the field because I at a great advantage in the hospital because I can monitor electrolytes and acid-base status very closely and can have the full-on continuous fluids held off the mare um, for 12 to 24 hours, which I think can be very helpful in in managing some of these cases. So that's more a reason for referral than a how to manage in the field. Uh, But I think it's an important thing to note that sometimes those cases are definitely best managed not in the field um however there certainly are situations where that's not an option for people and so i think monitoring the foals attitude appetite how well they're nursing and and looking at those electrolytes and acid-base balance if possible um that does require running a fresh blood sample, the typical recommendation is within 30 minutes if the sample is kept on ice. So that's not always possible. But as we get more and more stall-side uh, monitors, it, it makes that a little bit easier. Because one thing to be aware of with those foals is that particularly if they've had diarrhea for a few days, they can start to lose a tremendous amount of bicarbonate and can become very, very depressed from that and may require... Bicarb supplementation, which can be done orally with a mixture of baking soda, uh, or with IV bicarb added to their fluids, uh, but you need to be careful with how much you're giving them. Um, the other other practical tip we talked about with managing diarrhea folds is that. A lot of times they become very, very thirsty because they're dehydrated and then they drink a tremendous amount of the mare's water and they can dilute their sodium and chloride levels that way and can actually become quite neurologic if they get hyponatremic enough Uh, So I recommend to people that they add electrolytes to the mare's water buckets or elevate the buckets so the foals don't have access to the plain water because that can help prevent those electrolyte abnormalities from occurring.
0: Part of the world's leading animal health company with a 70-year legacy, Zoetis Equine is committed to providing horse care products and services that veterinarians and their teams can count on. With trusted vaccines such as Corey Q and Fluvax Innovator, leading diagnostics like the Stable Lab Stallside SAA blood test and the number one vet-trusted equine sedative, Dermosidan, and a portfolio of regenerative medicine devices that includes Prostride APS, Zoetis is always by your side. Be sure to follow Zoetis Equine on Facebook and Instagram today.
1: We also talked about management of contracted tendons. I think it can be important to uh, have a good, have a good supply of PVC splints on your truck. I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, some good, cheap PVC. Uh, it's fairly light, so the folds can still get around uh, with a splint on. You just have to be very careful with placing the splint uh, with a good Robert Jones bandage underneath to prevent any pressure source, um, and this would be for contracted tendons. And in terms of administering oxytetracycline, which can be very, very helpful, the key thing is that the tendons have to be under stress after the oxytide is given. Oxytad alone is not a magic cure and doesn't magically relax the tendons. They have to, has to be bearing weight on the proper surface of its foot and that tendon has to be stretched typically with a splint as well uh, in order to help correct the contracture. Uh, Now oxytet is nephrotoxic so I always recommend that the creatinine levels are checked and your typical healthy foal that is only dealing with a contracted tendon and not multiple other issues they usually tolerate oxytet treatment very well but i do like to check their creatinine daily uh, in combination with administration of the of the oxytet if that's what needs to be done in a field setting i do typically give oxytet in a liter of fluids as well so they're at least getting a little bit of additional hydration and it also helps decrease the risk of reactions to the administration of the oxytet Uh, The foals that I see that become severely azotemic after oxygen are typically the ones that are not nursing adequately and are dehydrated, so their kidneys are at higher risk of damage from the medication. And that can happen pretty easily if they're not able to stand because of the contracture and therefore aren't nursing adequately. And then the other thing I worry about these foals or that I see a lot in these foals is that often the farms have been bottle feeding them because they're not able to get to the udder. And if they're not a very strong, healthy foal may develop aspiration pneumonia from the bottle feeding. Um, So I think it's really important to assess their suckle reflex, their overall neurologic status, it's not uncommon that there will be a slight dummy foal that also has contracted tendons. And I'm very, very quick to place a feeding tube rather than try to bottle feed those foals.
0: have worked on a thoroughbred nursery yeah. early in my career, please tell the grooms do not cut the tips off the nipples because the foals aren't nursing fast enough for them. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Having the right, having the right bottle nipple combination is very important. (laughs) We discussed NI neonatal isoerythrolysis and how to prevent and treat that. I do think the antibody screening of the mares when they're ideally about two weeks from foaling can be very helpful. And then typically we recommend if they are positive, the foal is held off the mare, the mare is milked out, And the foal is provided colostrum from a tested source, ideally, um, at least an alternate source other than the mare, um, and then is fed through a tube or bottle if deemed safe um, until that mare has no colostrum left. And that can best be determined by a jaundice full agglutination test being performed, which is essentially a cross-match between the mare's milk and the foal's blood to make sure that there's no reaction. Um, That can also be done initially to see if the foal is at risk from nursing, because if it's negative, then the foal should not be at risk and can go ahead and uh, nurse from the mayor, which is certainly the easiest option for for all involved. <laughs> there was a lot of interest and good discussion. Uh, Dr. John Madigan from UC Davis was actually in attendance, and there was a lot of discussion of the um, squeeze full technique. Um, and he he was nice enough to demonstrate that for us. Um,
0: and so basically.
1: The theory behind this is that foals may not make the right transition to extra utero life and that they have abnormal levels of neuro hormones circulating in their system. And that if you administer these compounds to foals, they will act like a dummy foal. And so the theory is, is that if we can basically... Mimic the uh, process of going through the birth canal that that may um, that may help these folds make more of a normal mental transition to extra uterine life and increase their ability to find the utter and, and nurse. And so
0: it's a very simple
1: procedure. There are very good videos uh, available online. Um, And also some good resources on Davis's website that has good diagrams as well that shows how the rope should be placed. Now, the big caveat here is that you really need to make sure the foal does not have any fractured ribs first because certainly because the rope goes directly over their rib cage and you don't want to be pulling on non-displaced rib fractures and causing them to displace uh, and potentially puncturing vital structures um,
0: but typically the it's, it's very similar
1: idea to you know casting a cow as well uh, one of the things i think is really cool about this is you can also use it for restraint um medication-free drug-free restraint so if you're just administering plasma to the full or placing um splints on the full uh it can be very helpful with that to help keep the foal quiet during that procedure. Um, I don't, it's, it's great for mildly affected dummy foals. I tend not to see a lot of those foals because they typically are getting treated on the farm. Um, and so I get a lot of questions from, from clients and on social media about, um, you know, are we using this on, on our dummy folds here, and it's very, very case-selective. When they're severely affected and really you know, struggling to maintain their blood pressure, having seizures, um, I'm not using it on those folds at that point. But if it's just a mild ambulatory fold uh, and they just can't figure out how to nurse and are sucking on the walls, then I think that it's, it can be helpful in some of those situations.
0: So, Dr. Jessica, can you tell me, I, I'm interested in the diarrhea because, you know, having been on thoroughbred farms a lot when I grew up in Kentucky and, and working on them, what is the procedure now for working with foal diarrheas as far as, you know, what do you give them and what are you testing for? One thing that's really important with all these
1: foals is to make sure they have adequate passive transfer of immunity. So, we're looking for an adequate IgG levels at birth. And then there are a lot of the plasma companies now make uh, plasma that has specific antibodies to one or many different diarrheal pathogens. Uh, so our clostridial organisms, rotavirus, et cetera. Uh, there is not a lot of data to back up that this is helpful, uh, but some farms that have endemic problems with a given pathogen, which is often clostridium um, or rotavirus, uh, feel that these products may be helpful. And so some farms are routinely administering um, what we kind of think of as designer plasma. So plasma that has adequate antibody levels to help if they do have Failure of passive transfer, as well as antibodies against a specific pathogen, or solely against that specific diarrheal pathogen. Uh, so it would be great if we can get some more literature to look at whether or not that is helpful. It's it's of course a hard thing to study because those organisms tend to vary from year to year in terms of what the what the prevalence is. You know, often based on environmental conditions. Uh, but it would be great to have more information on that. From a testing standpoint, I use a lot of PCR diarrhea panels. It's become so fast and easy and you can screen for a tremendous number of pathogens all in one sample. However, I think it's really important to not over-interpret the results because our PCR tests are so very sensitive. And so clostridium, I think, is... The best example of that and probably the most confusing to interpret uh, because the PCR tests are testing for the DNA of the toxins that are produced that cause disease. So you know that those toxins or enterotoxins are there and there's a there's a few different clostridium perfringens, enterotoxins, um, that may cause varying levels of degree, but you don't know necessarily how relevant that positive test is. And if you've got a large amount of those toxins present, so there is still a place for the ELISAs for cholesterol toxins also, uh, but on an individual full basis in some situations that may be academic. And for me, it's often enough to say, okay, okay, They're positive, they're PCR positive for their yeast clostridial toxins. I'm going to treat them as if they have clostridium. And I know that they don't have salmonella, (laughs) which is also handy to know um, from my PCR test. And and not worry so much about doing ELISA's as well. But if I'm dealing with a farm outbreak type situation and I really want to know what's going on in multiple folds and really get to the bottom of what the relevant pathogens are, are, then I may need to do additional testing, but it's really great to be able to send out one test and get PCR results for you know a whole list of organisms. Um, the other thing to be aware of, though, is that with rotavirus B, there are a lot of labs that are not yet able to run PCR tests for that. So the standard rotavirus PCR is just testing for rotavirus A, which is also what is in the vaccine that the broodmares get, um, the rotavirus B, there's only a few labs out there that are doing that. So you just have to be aware of what exactly is getting tested. Um, And University of Kentucky, the Gluck Center is doing a lot of research right now on rotavirus B. So hopefully there will be more information coming and more help with preventative measures as well.
0: Well, that's great. Well, we really appreciate you being with us today, Dr. Javzikas. And A big thanks to Zoetis for sponsoring this podcast because as we all know, we can't make it to every one of the talks at AAP. So it's, it's fun to have this. Is there anything else that you had wanted to add or are you good?
1: No, I think that's, I think that's it in terms of highlights. So thanks so much to you and to Zoetis for having me. Well, we
0: really appreciate it. And to our audience, make sure you listen to all 12 of these special editions of the Daily Vet Life podcast. You can listen on your favorite podcast network or you can go to equimanagement.com and we'll have an article and a player for each podcast on the website. And that way you can listen to all of them there if you want. Thank you again for joining us. And thank you again, Dr. Jessica for being with us. Thank you.